The fact of the matter is that human beings evolved to be physically active for two reasons and two reasons only. One is because it was necessary, and the other is when it was socially rewarding, right? We danced, you know, and we and we hunted and we gathered and we, you know, we ran away from the occasional saber-toothed tiger and whatever. But that's it, right? Um, but we nobody uh, and and now we live in a world where machines have replaced, you know, human labor. So you can spend your entire day without ever getting your heart rate up. And we have to now do something really weird. We have to choose to be physically active. We have to exercise. And and I think we need to be a much more compassionate and and about it rather than make people feel bad about it. And also we need to be honest to folks. The, the idea that there's an optimal form of exercise is farcical. Of course, there's no optimal form of exercise. You know, if you're not exercising, anything is better than not doing it at all, right? Hello there to you, it's Steve Ingham here and thank you for tuning into the Supporting Champions podcast, whether it's the first time or if you're a regular listener. So I've spent my career working in high performance and I'm fascinated by the process of supporting other people in pursuit of their version of performance, whether that's in sports, business, arts, exploration. And it's my real hope that the conversations that we have on the podcast with performers, with coaches, with researchers can help you too. This week's guest is Harvard University Professor of Biological Sciences, Dan Lieberman. So if you've heard of Dan, it will probably be in connection with his work around whether we're born to run, i.e. that's a number of specific evolutionary adaptations that we have, as a species have acquired over time that have enabled us to be really rather good at running for long distances. And this has hinted that our survival has been aided by our ability to hunt by wearing animals down, i.e. prey, known as persistence hunting. But Dan has got a new book out called Exercised, which, as Dan explains, is cutely entitled because so many people are so exercised about exercise. And I expect you can think of many people that have opinions that are so specific or adamant that one way is the best way. The book takes a broader view, reminding us of our biological origins, of why we do sports and exercise, what we're good at, what we're not so good at. And Dan takes aim at a few current fads and myths or things that have been misinterpreted, like sitting being the new smoking, whether we should be so fixated on step counts or how much exercise is enough. And in so doing, Dan widens our perspectives to think in a more healthy way. One of the book's central ideas is that exercise is basically weird, which is apt as I start off by asking Dan about a pig running on a treadmill. Um, welcome, Dan. Welcome to the podcast. I'm, I'm really looking forward to speaking today. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks. <laughs> now, congratulations on the book, uh, Exercise, The Science of Physical Activity, Rest and Health. So I want to tell you the first thing I did when I received the, my copy. Uh, I looked straight into the index for pig. Uh, pi- and there it was, pig on a treadmill study. <laughs> And uh, I was delighted because I remembered seeing a talk that you gave and you just delighted in putting a video up on screen of a pig running on a treadmill with this bouncy old head. <laughs> uh, so you use that in the book too to create the case around 
the idea that we're selected to run. But what an imaginative way to do that. Well, it's actually what happened. I mean, you know, research has a funny, you know, you can't really predict how research will go. But I, uh, you know, I, I started off my career as a head guy, basically. And, um, and I got interested in the problem of head stabilization, um, largely um, because of an experiment we were doing where we were putting, using uh, actually a miniature pigs and we were comparing effects of mechanical loading on the head versus the, the limb bones. And it's complicated. It doesn't matter here. Anyway, bottom line is we were putting all these pigs on treadmills and um, um, and um, my my friend and colleague Dennis Bramble, walked, who was visiting from the University of Utah, I, was a, I guess I was a postdoc or grad student at the time, I can't remember. Um, but um, this is a long time ago. But he walked into the room and kind of just you know, casually remarked that the pig couldn't hold its head still while it was running. Um, and, um, and that was, uh, that led to all these conversations about the nuchal ligament and head stabilization and how bipeds like humans are, can't use the mechanisms that quadrupeds have to stabilize their heads. And, and, uh, in fact, we just published a paper last week in, in, uh, in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, where we tested some of those, uh, linkages between, you know, how humans use their arm to stabilize their head. It's a, it's a kind of a fun story, but, but that's really kind of what got me going on this idea that, um, humans evolved to run long distances it was the it was this uh, this 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 problem of head stabilization and then of course it 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 turned into a um a career-long obsession on physical activity and running and 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 and, and you know walking and god knows what else so I've really enjoyed diving into the book. It's it's been fascinating. I'm hoping to to ask you about some of the main points that you raise, and hopefully you'll entertain some of my tangents, interpretations, or or at least for me to clarify because this is this is a bit of a fusion for of two two of my fascinations of around the science of sport, but but also our evolutionary origins. And I I, I don't know nearly enough about it, and I'm, so I'm keen to learn. Um, I'm always fascinated to find out sort of an origin or the motivation behind writing a book. And then I got to page six and seven of the book, and I could probably ask you the questions for the rest of the episode here today about pages six and seven, um, where you lay out the case of a research trip to Sierra, where you not only find a surprising reaction to your daily routine of running every morning... The locals think, what are you doing? (laughs) But then you also encounter a tribal ritual that would rival any ultra-endurance event. Uh, Could you tell me about what you found? Yeah, well, so, I mean, the book started. I mean, there really was a moment. Sometimes this actually happens. Um, There's kind of a moment that sort of crystallizes one's thinking. And and for me, it was um, uh, in 2012 when I was finishing up my previous book, The Story of the Human Body, and I had gone to the Ironman uh, competition in Kona, which is, you know, a remarkable <laughs> endurance event. And then a few weeks later, I was in the Sierra Tarahumara, uh, collecting data, biomechanical data on, on the on the running on running by the Tarahumara Native Americans, who become very famous for their for their long distance running in all kinds of actually abstruse and incorrect ways. But anyway, um, and I was, you know, being a good anthropologist, and I was collecting data, and I was setting up these little tracks and having people run on them, and I had my list of questions I was asking everybody, and there was this. Um, and you know, I had a translator because I don't speak Ramari, which is the the native language. Um, and um, and we were in really remote areas. I mean, really remote, sleeping on the floors of pueblos and stuff like that. And there was this elderly guy I remember interviewing, who I had been told was a very famous runner. Um, and um, 
later actually got to see him running in one of these these races called Aurora Hippery. But at the time, I didn't know him from Adam, you know, and I was just talking to him and asking him the usual questions. And I was I had been having trouble with almost everybody. Uh, one of my questions was, how do you train? <laughs> and nobody seemed to be able to answer the question. And the translator I was working with was really struggling to try to figure out. And so he was explaining how, you know, I go for a run every morning. And and this this elderly fellow just looked at me and he said, why would anybody run if they didn't have to? <laughs> you know, he didn't need a translator to hear the tone of his voice. And um, I remember kind of laughing at embarrassment. But... Um, but realizing that, of course, you know, just like reading is a modern thing that nobody ever used to do or, you know, going to school. And, you know, there's so many things that we do today that are modern and abnormal. And exercise is really one of them. You know, people were always physically active. But, but you know, doing discretionary, needless physical activity for the sake of health and fitness, which is what exercise is, is not something that anybody did until recently. And that was really um, the moment when I really thought, you know, my next book should be a natural history of of exercise and just how weird and strange it is. <laughs> yeah, that is a that is a real theme. Just weird. You use the weird word quite a lot, <laughs> just to remind us that this isn't a usual thing. This isn't in our in our history. This isn't something that that you could track all the way back. But it's interesting that you found it as a ritual. These this long eighty mile run. Uh, that people did, and and you found some remarkable similarities with rubberized shoes, sports style drink, and uh, and some some interesting sort of chants, breath and soul, which mm. you could almost imagine the if you looked at uh, hearing somebody cheer somebody else on, you could hear "stay relaxed" or uh, "dig in, stay strong." You could hear no. similar sorts of chants, well, couldn't you? Well, we like to, you know, there's this, what I call, the, I call the myth of the athletic savage, this idea that we, you know, somehow, um, you know, people who are, you know, not contaminated by civilization are, are, you know, these amazing athletes. And if we, you know, if we didn't have Gatorade and, or I guess you have Lucasade in the UK or, or, you know, um, you know, fancy shoes and Garmin watches and all that stuff, we'd be able to get out of bed and run an ultra marathon easily. And, but people are people and yeah, sure. The, the Taramara don't have um, um, the kind of commercialized, um, uh, industrialized, medicalized sort of approach to, to exercise and sports that we do, but they're human beings just like us. And they have the same, you know, they're, they're scratch anybody and they're basically the same underneath. And, and, uh, and so they have their, you know, they have their own form of Gatorade. It's just, they don't pay for it. They make it themselves and they have their own form of, you know, cheering each other on and they, and they and they don't have uh, you know prize money, but um, in the same that way we do. But they bet you know voraciously on these on these races and 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 you know so we we like to kind of otherize them, but they're actually we're all kind of the same. And and I think um, and um, uh, and I think there's a, a a lot to be learned from that. That um, that that although um, physical activity is old and ancient, um, you know we you know we've been we've been doing sports and play and all that in every culture um just for but just not but not 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 to get exercise but for other reasons you know and and i think that's an important um thing to remember you know we often equate sports and exercise um but i think that's a bad equation that's a bad relationship sure people do get exercise sometimes playing sports but that's not why most cultures engage in sports in fact i should say all cultures engage in sports Okay, so did you ask them when when they said, "Why would you? Why would you go out for a 
a run if you didn't need to. Did you ask them why they undertook this ultra endurance event? Well, I mean, yeah, it took me years to kind of figure it out. But basically, the reason the Taramara do this amazing run, and by the way, most of them don't do it. Only a few of them do it. So we also have this false notion that it's just like all of them. But it's actually a small group of individuals who are the main runners, and everybody else supports them, just like in, in, in you know, in America or the United States or, or the UK or whatever. But, um, but the reason they do it. Um, I think is because it's a form of prayer, um, and uh, the the Rara Hippery actually to them is a is a prayer to their god, uh, whose name I have a difficult time pronouncing properly, but Oronuame I think is the is roughly the correct pronunciation, um, and it's a it's a sacred journey for them, and um, and and actually if you look at uh, throughout the the New World, pretty much every Native American uh, peoples have. Um, have forms of, of, of long distance running that are, that have spiritual dimensions that are forms of prayer. Um, they run because it matters to them. Um, and, and, um, and, um, some of us do the same thing, right? Um, um, it, it I, I'm not sure for me running is a form of prayer, but there's a, certainly a spiritual dimension to it for me. And I think it's one of the reasons why, why so many people are so feel so, so, so strongly about their running. Yeah, okay. So I'm hearing the Australian walkabout, almost self-discovery piece there in terms of connection. And I suppose one of the unexpected experiences, having got a bit older and got a bike and um, and cycling with friends, is discovering my landscape, discovering where I live, um, as opposed to driving to work or driving to the shops, driving to destinations to serve a purpose – I actually feel more grounded and connected with the place that I live because I've, I've ridden the roads, I've experienced the the topography of where I live. I, I'm I'm trying to relate a similar sort of experience there. Oh, absolutely, and I think um, I think that in a way, actually, I mean, there are all kinds of adaptations that we have for that, and uh, one of them I think is actually the runner's high. So you know, uh, uh, that's caused by um, you know we often mistake the runner's high for the kind of sort of endogenous opioids and other kinds of neurochemicals that our brains produce that kind of uh, to lead pain, et cetera. But, but really the, the true runner's high is called by endocannabinoids, which heighten your sensory awareness. And when you're, if you ever had the, 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 the experience of, of, of having a runner's high, you know that your sensory awareness of your environment is just heightened, right? You know, the trees, the path, the, the road, the sounds that you hear. And I think that may be a, an ancient adaptation to, um, to help um, to help hunters and uh, you know uh, you know interact with their environment as they are as they're hunting and picking up clues and cues and as they as they're uh, as they're trying to track animals or to just make it less painful because it's going on for quite a while yeah well those are the endocannabinoids those are the, those are the opioids too that certainly blunts the pain that's for sure <laughs> you make um you quite uh, an interesting point uh, you talk about the work of Richard B Lee and others that highlighted the duration of hunting and gathering, uh, those activities. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, or I, I certainly the way I interpret the, the, the section here uh, was that previously they, those activities have been compared to modern endurance running and events as explanatory as to why we have evolved certain characteristics and so on, such as sweating, which you, you make the case for. Um, but you dig into this a bit more by actually twisting this round a little bit to, to, to show, well, the pace and the intensity is relatively low, 
perhaps unexpectedly. They're not going out for a tempo run uh, to, <laughs> when they're doing their when when it's uh, when they're hunting. Um, but also, the rest of the day is relatively sedate, and they spend a lot of time sitting. Um, are you are you making this particular point and angle primarily because this is not too dissimilar from somebody working at a desk uh, for eight hours a day and then doing engaging in some aerobics at the gym, for example? Well, I guess there's some, a bunch of points. I mean, that that you know, we have the. I think that so much of our attitude towards exercise and sports has been um, biased by by elite sports, right? We think that when you think of running, you think of you know Elliot Kipchoge and you know Usain Bolt or whoever you you happen to be thinking about, right? But you know there's some, some of these great astonishing runners, and we and we and we we love to talk about the the extremes of performance, but but we never evolved to do any of those things. Nobody evolved to you know. Our ancestors did not stand on one line and run as fast as they possibly could to another line 26.2 miles away or whatever the distance might be, right? That's a really strange modern thing. When when they ran, they ran in order to get dinner on the table, um, and they were running sort of like 10-minute miles, I mean, very gradual paces. And we have data from that from the Taramara. We have data on that from the from South from South Africa, from, from, from Southern Africa, from guy named Louis Liebenberg, who's, who's actually collected good data on person stunting. We have, we have data from all over the world, right? And um, um, and so that's kind of what's normal, right? <laughs> From an evolutionary perspective, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you know racing a marathon or whatever. But let's not pretend that's what that's what's normal, right? We and we, and, and and I think uh, there's also all kinds of biases that get introduced by our kind of assumption that that the kind of elite sports represents what we you know uh, what we evolved to do, and it's one of the reasons why people get so injured, right? They're 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 you know they're they're pushing the envelope way beyond what we ever evolved to do. Um, running on surfaces we never evolved to run on at speeds we never evolved to run at regularly day after day after day i mean nobody did that in the past so um, um it's it's wonderful and delightful that we can do these sorts of things but let's not make people feel bad for not doing it and and also i think it also it um it creates a kind of a it can also create a kind of psychological problem because just as you know if we over focus on um you know, supermodels as, as, as sort of models for feminine beauty. I think uh, kids growing up today uh, think that, um, you know, they have to be like an elite football player or, you know, one of the great runners. And and they're not really the best models for just sort of normal, everyday, healthy physical activity. Um, 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 it's they're, they're really more entertainers, actually. Mm. I, th- I certainly, that's that sense of the fact that we've become overly prescriptive or that we don't like too much change, for example. So the you mentioned Kipchoge and the the sub two project. Well, we don't. Oh, we don't like that. Um, <laughs> as if as if the marathon has got some sort of history and prestige because of the way uh, it's previously been run. But you know the the little bit on the end, the point two miles. Uh, that that was stuck on there because it was more convenient for the finish to be where the queen was at the Olympics. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so th- suddenly we've sort of crystallised and said, "Oh no, it's got to be like that, and it's got to be performed in a certain way with a certain level of character that suits my personal preference." Uh, <laughs> we've become well, quite prescriptive about the way we we uh, observe sports. Well, the reason I entitled the book "Exercise" is that. The vast majority of human beings are exercised about exercise, right? They're yeah, nervous, yeah, exactly. they're anxious, they're upset, they're confused. They, you know, and 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 our solution to 
sort of physical activity in the modern world is to, is basically to commodify it, to industrialize it, to commercialize it, to medicalize it, right? Exercise is medicine. And I'm not opposed to any of these things, but let's be honest, it's not working for most people, right? Um, you know, in the, the vast majority of, of people in Western industrialized countries uh, don't actually ever exercise. Um, about 50% of Americans never exercise at all in their leisure time. And and uh, I, th- I think the data for the UK is not that much different. And and um, and and the average American, you know, the World Health Organization and every other major health organization on the planet recommends that you get at least 150 minutes a week of physical activity, of moderate to vigorous physical activity. That's 21 minutes a day, right? Only about 20, 25% of Americans uh, get that. And um, that's terrible, right? And we're not that different from a lot of other Western countries. Um, so I think the proof is in the pudding that our 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 commodified sort of in medicalized approach to physical activity does not work for the vast majority of human beings in the modern world. No, I, I'm, I'm remembering a discussion at the Cheltenham Science Festival. So it's a, it's a wonderful celebration of uh, the application of science to, to the community. And uh, I was on a panel a number of years ago and somebody puts their hand up and says, what's the best exercise how how should i how should i approach uh, you know what's what's best for me one panel member talked about triathlon triathlon's the best because it's got a bit of running a bit of cycling a bit of swimming made a compelling case for it using different modes of of uh, exercise but also different muscles and then the person to the left of me said or what you need to make sure is you set a a goal goal setting is essential and then what you need to do is work your way back with a periodized plan uh, and, and structure it in micro cycles and set yourself personal goals every day and tick those off. And I said, do something that you love, <laughs> mix it up every now and again and try and do it frequently with friends. <laughs> and I got a real sense of that from, from your book. Try and keep this simple. Let's not overly complicate this and get wedded to one particular ideal. That's right. I, well, you and I are on the same. I mean, I really, I really, I mean, part of the book is a reaction to this medicalized, prescription-based, you know, um, um, you know, commodified. Let's be honest. Uh, triathlons are very expensive. Most people can't afford the bikes and, you know, flying to Hawaii or whatever it is the you know, they're, they're like eight hundred. I don't know what the the entry fee is for some of these Ironmans, but it's incredibly expensive. I mean, you know, it's not. That's not. It's mostly millionaires who run Ironman. You know, they're they're not. You're not your average people in terms of their their income. Um, so, you know, we, we, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be complicated. I mean, the fact of the matter is that human beings evolved to be physically active for two reasons and two reasons only. One is because it was necessary. And the other is when it was socially rewarding, right? We danced, you know, and we, and we hunted and we gathered and we, you know, we ran away from the occasional saber tooth tiger and whatever, but that's it. Right. Um, but we, nobody, uh, and, and now we live in a world where machines have replaced, um, phys- you know, human labor. So you can spend your entire day without ever getting your heart rate up. And we have to now do something really weird. We have to choose to be physically active. We have to exercise. And um, and and I think we need a, to be a much more compassionate and and about it rather than make people feel bad about it. And 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 also we need to be honest to folks. The the idea that there's an optimal form of exercise is farcical. Of course, there's no optimal form of exercise. You know, 
if you're not exercising, anything is better than not doing it at all, right? And if you do a bit more, that's good. And mix it up is a bit fine. But your grandmother knows that, right? And who doesn't know that, right? Um, but and yet people are constantly asking, you know, what's the optimal form of exercise? And you know, it, it depends. You know, I mean, how would you? How would anybody know? It depends on whether you're old or young, or you have an injury, or whether you're worried about heart disease or, 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 or Alzheimer's or, or, you know, osteoporosis. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's farcical to think that you could come up with an optimal form of exercise. Yeah. I, I love that. I, I think it's so important to, for people to hear that as a message. And I, and I think your the broad, but also historical approach will, will really help people in the sense that um, to deal with, to, to, to deal with some of these fads, uh, to deal with this this warped view of what we should be doing foregoes and skips over where we've come from. Um, yeah, I think that's that's really important. I mean, I could probably have made a lot more money if I had written a book, say, with, you know, seven yeah. steps, you know, to use evolution to make you, some, <laughs> you know, some kind of paleo fitness kind of book, right? Um, I probably could have sold more copies of the book because um, uh, people just want to be told what to do and we're conditioned to that. Um, but I'm, but the book is really a reaction to that approach to, to exercise and physical activity. I really enjoyed the, the chapter on fighting. Uh, and that was really interesting because mm. I think uh, speed, strength, endurance, we sort, of, we sort of do quite well with the endurance, the speed not so much, um, and so on. But I, I was fascinated by the chapter on, on fighting which combined your exploration of the physical and the psychological. So physically, we might not compete with some of our ancestral cousins. Uh, psychologically, we've stepped away from, in groups, certainly what was, well, it still persists, of course, but we've, we've adapted or we've grown other aspects of our psyche where there's aggression and hierarchy from our chimp cousins through to consideration, through to altruism and that cooperative approach. Um, and I was fascinated by the fact that you, one of the themes and ideas here was that it links to bipedalism. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that in terms of um, some sort of link to our ability to hunt. And I'm getting from that a sense of uh, our our capacity to work as a team. Yeah, well, it's a complicated story, but um, but basically, as soon as we became bipeds, we became slow. You know, you only, if you only have two legs to push off the ground, you have, you know half the cylinders is a, you know having four legs, right? So we immediately became easy pickings for 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 any carnivore out there who wanted to eat us, right? Um, but it gave us, as as Darwin uh, himself argued in The Origin of Species, it gave us the opportunity to, to to use our hands for tools and weapons, and that took you know a few million years after bipedalism evolved for 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 stone tools to start being made, and and we're not really quite sure when real serious lethal weapons were invented, but that but that changed everything because all of a sudden once you have weapons, right? Um, you you change the dynamics of the how we fight, and humans still fight. <laughs> it's not it's not hard to open a newspaper today and see, you know, all the fighting that still goes on. We fight in all kinds of different ways, but but we fight in in complicated ways, and we have we have aggression, but our aggression is both proactive and reactive. So proactive aggression is uh, is is very different from reactive aggression. Reactive aggression is is just the kind of 
you know, road rage, you know, when you immediately just get upset by something, you know, um, you, where you just, you just, you know, slap somebody back because they took your sandwich or something like that. Um, and, and all creatures have a lot of reactive aggression. Proactive aggression is premeditated and planned, right? It's warfare or it's, for that matter, um, you know, a football game is a kind of proactive aggression, right? And especially American football game, right? But, um, but, um, and, and I think that we, um, uh, you know, we evolved uh, to be uh, to fight in different ways, and to and also to we have evolved, sports evolved. I think as a way to teach uh, children not to be reactively aggressive, to be a good sportsman, um, and it also enabled us to um, you know change the kind of dynamic. So no longer was the you know the, no longer is it such a case in human evolution that the biggest, strongest, you know, largest you know guy always wins, right? If you have a bow and arrow, that changes the dynamic totally, right? David and Goliath, right? And so, uh, so our, our relationship to, to fighting, uh, f- you know, there's been selection in humans. To st- we still fight, but we, but we fight in a totally different way from other animals. Um, and, and, um, and, um, and I think that uh, sports evolved, not, again, not so much for exercise, but as a way to teach us to fight in ways that we consider socially acceptable in our kind of cooperative societies. So, um, um it's uh, yeah, I had really a lot of fun writing that chapter, but it's not a it's not a simple argument. Um, it's, 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 I don't think I've done it justice right here right now in terms of in terms of explaining it. Uh, but hopefully the chapter does a better job. No, I mean, I, I think that, that um, it's interesting, and I, I remember reading some work of Franz de Waal and Richard Wrangham, who you you cite in the book, and Steven Pinker about about our human brain pulling us in different directions that we are naturally hardwired to compete to be aggressive, to to seek power. And that's perhaps testosterone-driven versus sort of the, the bonobo ape type approach, which is a little bit more love, a little bit more cooperation and altruism. And we might be somewhere in the middle. And to me, boxing, or that fighting chapter, started to pull that apart a little bit. The sport does this so well, where we agree to compete today. And in the ring, we are literally going to you know, try and knock each other out. But at the end of it, we'll touch gloves and we'll respect and bow and say nice things about each other in, in a very friendly but sort of you know, camaraderie-based uh, activity, which, is, which seems bipolar in some ways. No, but it isn't from an evolutionary perspective because after all, you know, from most of human evolution, who would you fight with, right? Who would you play with, right? The same people, right? Um, you can't get away with um, uh, or, 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 you know, if, if you in the terms of sports, right? Um, you might fight, you might have combat with, with others, right? With other groups, other species, other whatever, but th- that would be totally different. So, so we, we play and fight, um, in terms of sports in order to, 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 to teach each other social skills, to teach each other, um, how to control our reactive aggression. Um, but also to train each other and to give each other the combat skills necessary, uh, for other forms of aggression that were important for human survival, proactive forms of aggression. I mean, think about it. Most of the think about the Olympics, right? Think about all the the sports that we really care about in the Olympics. Most of them, especially the old Olympics, you know, the old Greek Olympics. Those are all, you know, those are those are things that humans are really good at compared to other animals. Those are often, you know, uh, 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 characteristics that are really important for for warfare, mm. right? The fastest person, right? Uh, the strongest person, the best boxer, right? Or you know, back, you know, javelin throwing, discus. Why do we have discus throwing? And the, you know, why does anybody care about it, right? Because back in the in the old days, that was, 
you know, a way to train somebody for combat. Um, chariot racing, which we which we don't do anymore. I'm not sure if that's good or bad, but um, uh, you know, those are all combats. You know, had to do with combat. In fact, ex- we still use the word exercise, right? Military. In the military, soldiers do exercises, right, to train for combat. Yeah. Right. So we've just adapted this word um, for for health and fitness, but it it had very different uh, meaning for for most of uh, human history. Well, there's certainly some, um, I suppose, historical hangover there. So the modern pentathlon is a modern version of the the well, a fairly old version now, but of the the warrior. The, Correct. The, Absolutely. The military person on on horsebacks for swimming, shooting, etc. Yeah, or the biathlon um, in the Winter Olympics, right? Yeah, absolutely. Ski and yeah. shoot. <laughs> well, they, they they had town planning in the Olympics at one point. I don't, I'm not quite sure. Maybe, maybe that was useful to lay out the tribal boundary. I, I don't know. <laughs> Interesting, fascinating stuff. So, um, and as in, as interested in your your chapter on speed too, in the sense that it it really sort of laid bare our inadequacy in the in the speed charts, and um, <laughs> I I was struck. Uh, 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 Craig Sharp. I don't know whether you know. Oh, Craig. I knew Craig Rob. Sharp. What a wonderful person! Oh yeah. Uh, so Craig, Craig set up the British Olympic Medical Centre where I right. met your collaborator Rob Shave, and um, and Craig would come in and, and regale us with our with stories. But but he would uh, insist on sharing insights from comparative physiology, anatomy, and psychology. Right. Um, he, Craig, obviously the first person to clock a cheetah right, right. Uh, in, in Kenya. And, um, and he was, he was quite, he was quite uh, keen on broadening our perspectives to say, look, we don't watch kangaroo jumping, but they are way better than long jump <laughs> in humans. Um, we don't watch the Arctic turn fly from pole to pole, uh, sleeping on the wing, feeding on the wing, um, we have this interest in human performance because it's more about the endeavor, which I, which I was really struck by. Um, but it was, it was an interesting, interesting perspective that we aren't particularly quick. Um, but we do prioritize that as a, as a real event with something that something that, uh, in sports we really, uh, look for, we prioritize and we celebrate. Right. And think about it because, um, you know, normally humans don't race kangaroos or, for that matter, cheetahs for, for good reason. But um, but we we race each other um, in 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 war, right? Yeah, think about Achilles, you know, and Hector chasing each other around the gates of Troy, right? Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly how long that 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 race was, but um, there's a reason we we care about you know higher, faster, you know, um, um, stronger. It's those are the those are the those are the the characteristics that may not necessarily be the most important in the Paleolithic, but they certainly became important uh, after the after the origins of civilization and uh, and in you know and when we started having you know fighting. Um, but um, but if you're a hunter gatherer, what really matters is endurance. And you know, too much strength as a hunter gatherer is a problem. Um, uh, hunter gatherers aren't particularly fast; they don't need to be. Um, 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 so you know, a lot of the characteristics that we really kind of care about the most uh, are really very recent, uh, um, uh, very recent in our in our history. And can I ask you about the the sort of final few chapters then? Um, how to make exercise happen? Um, it, it's brilliant because it 
starts with referencing Beyond Borg's high performance underwear. So that's that's <laughs> just worth noting. Um, and and you. Uh, there's, a, there's a little bit of witty sort of tease all the way through, which I, I, I wrote several of them down. They're brilliant. Um, you know, how exercise became weird, talking about rodents in gardens. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it makes the read so much more enjoyable because of that. So thank you. But sorry, I was asking you a question. Um, how to make exercise happen? You've gone really broad back in time, thinking about who we are, where we've come from, what we can and can't do. And your first base is... Exercise is bizarre, modern, and optional, which I thought was great. That's just a solid reminder. Just get over yourselves a little bit. Um, and then you make some suggestions about necessity, fun, and I'm hearing also starting young. Could you tell us a little bit more about your your sort of overarching thoughts? Well, I mean, you know, that, so the last section of the book, I wanted to apply the sort of evolutionary anthropological approach to to the modern world, right? And so... You know, because, um, um, you know, what's the point of the natural history of part, you know, well, one of the points is, is that I think it can help us, you know, do a better job about thinking about exercise and thinking about how to encourage each other. And, you know, again, going back to very simple, basic principles, you know, we can either make it necessary or we can make it fun or ideally make it necessarily and make it fun. Right. Which is, I think is, is the best thing to do. And, and, uh, so that means we have to get away from the current model of, again of medicalizing and commercializing exercise it's just it's just not it's not sufficient and um and you know the the literature is just filled with failed efforts to try to get people to be more physically active i mean it's one of the most depressing bits of literature to read you know study after study after study has tiny little effects or no effect you know it's really hard to get people to exercise and so i actually started that chapter off i was doing some research on this and i was kind of thinking well what what if we force people to exercise, you know, just the way we do in school, right? We make kids exercise and we don't do as good a job of it as we should. Um, and I, you know, I've been trying to get Harvard to restart a physical activity, required physical activity for university students, but that's, that's, a, that's an uphill battle at the moment. But um, I, 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 found, I came across the Bjorn Borg company in Sweden, which is the only company in the world, to my knowledge, that actually requires all of its employees to exercise. So I so I just had to go. I, I emailed them and they invited me to come. And <laughs> before I knew it, I was in Stockholm and I participated in it. And they gave me full reign to go around that place, and it was fascinating. Um, not everybody likes it, but um, and not everybody would. But also, not everybody would do it if they didn't um, weren't required to. Um, but almost everybody agrees it's a good it's a good thing. So the question is really, how, you know, that's not going to really happen. Most companies cannot and will not, and maybe in some countries it may not, may, may not even be legal. And I'm not really a fan of sort of forcing people to do things. So, so how can we do a better job? And so that's really what this chapter is about, ways to, to use these kind of evolutionary principles to kind of rethink in a different way um, how to make exercise both necessary and fun. And I, and I think the key really is to make it social. Um, and I, I think we should treat exercise like education. I mean, think about education, right? We never evolved to read. Nobody until a few thousand years ago read anything. I mean, there wasn't reading didn't exist, right? And now we think, and in, in, until until the industrial revolution, you know, um, um, you know, universal literacy was also kind of just unimaginable, right? So now we think everybody should learn to read. 
And how do we, and we make kids go to school and how do we do that? We make them, you know, we make school necessary, but we also try to make it fun, right? Although during this, during the, the pandemic, it's become a hell of a lot less fun for, for kids. And we we're very aware of that, right? And it's fun because it's social, right? There's games and sports mm. and play and, and there's music and there's theater and et cetera. And there's also, you know, you, you see your friends in school and all that sort of stuff. And, and so I, I explore in the book all kinds of ways uh, to make exercise both necessary and fun using kind of education as a kind of model. Mm. And I was really struck by your reminder that we've got to, we've got to work perhaps disproportionately harder to make it non-judgmental. Yeah. I guess when we're, when we're participating in whether it's online turbo trainer, Zwift meetups, you start competing to a certain uh, extent. You start comparing yourself. How am I getting on with others? And we've just got to be a bit kinder to ourselves and to each other to, to share the experience. Well, you know, competition is great for some kids, um, but it's not great for everyone. I mean, I was a nerd and when I was growing up. I, was, I really was one of those people I always picked last for a team. I was not very athletic and I was ashamed of my body and I, 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 I wasn't good at anything. And um, uh, at least I didn't think I was. And um, I was exactly the kind of kid who was left behind by, by, our kind of, by, by, by that approach to sports. But there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that doesn't fit everybody's needs. And we just need to be more compassionate and more uh, non-judgmental and more open about ways to – because, you know, I mean, just even your average, uh, average human being has still got quite extraordinary physical activ- activity you know, capabilities. Uh, one of my favorite, you know, factoids in the book, which I, you know, love to, to throw around is um, that even a sedentary American is more physically active than a wild chimpanzee, right? Um, <laughs> that's kind of interesting, right? Um, we're, you know, we're, we're, and so, you know, basic stuff that people do, you know, doing gardening and shopping and walking around, well, that's all, that's all physical activity and it matters and it's important and we should celebrate those things just as much as we celebrate being able to run 100, 100 meters as fast as you can and, and so on. There's just, there's so many ways to, to encourage people and help people. Uh, well, I definitely do that. I, I'm always categorizing if I'm uh, doing the vacuuming or if I'm chopping up wood or if I'm... The only time I've really overtrained was when I had to scarify and redo our lawn. <laughs> three, <laughs> three days of hard work and I, I was... My glands were up. I was wiped. Um, Dan, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Thank you for answering my questions. It's a book that I'm going to delight in pouring over and taking some real time in enjoying and soaking up. And, and I think there's, I've got a real sense that people reading it will have a more, inf- just going into exercise, a bit more informed about how they're built, where they're from. Um, and it could easily help people be more considered open, a bit more relaxed and maybe imaginative about how they exercise. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, again, the, the reason I entitled it exercise is that I hope that we become less exercised about exercise. That's the real purpose. <laughs> If you're interested in Dan's book, then take a look at the show notes for the best website to link to. You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and Supporting Champions at Support underscore Champs. And we're on LinkedIn, Instagram. I've just started to dabble with Clubhouse at Steve Ingham. If you're looking for some coaching support or some virtual team development to help support you go to the next level in work, life or sport, then take a look at supportingchampions.co.uk forward slash coaching 
hyphen mentoring or drop us a note at inquiries at supportingchampions.co.uk and you can sign up for a free consultation to explore which type of package is right for you.